Let's pray before we turn to God's word. Dear Father, we thank you that though you are a holy God, we can call you Father. And we thank you that you have given us this printed word in language we can understand. Lord, please open our ears, open our hearts, and help us to hear what you are saying to us through this today. And help us to remember it and act on it. Amen. Amen. So it's Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. You can find it on page 1008 in the Church Bibles. So Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why his miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a dish. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a dish. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you. To keep your Bibles open there, 
Um, I'm going to aim to um, do a little bit of a sermon, and then uh, we're going to stop and do a two-minute silence. And uh, Helen, if she's here, I think is going to play the last post for us, and then we're going to reflect upon um, a song afterwards. Um, but um, listen, what I think we get here is there's no king greater than Jesus, the king of life. And I think the aim of this passage is to help us to repent, to stop living for ourselves, we'll have other human beings tell us what to do, and to follow him more. Um, why do you want to listen to this? Because it's the word of God, but also we don't want to throw our lives away. We don't want to throw our lives away uh, following the wrong person, whether it's ourselves or someone else. Um, war brings out the best and the worst, doesn't it? And so remember it's Sunday, we remember the glorious dead and how great they were in what they did for us in lots of ways. But it also brings out the worst, doesn't it, in human nature. And that's a little bit of what we're seeing in this passage. Uh, this gospel, this account of Jesus' life, is supposed to tell us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that is God's chosen king. And that it's good news having him as your king. And one way is that we're seeing how it is good news to have him as your king this morning is we're seeing how terrible it is to have anyone else as your king because they are shot through with sin and unable to save or break free from just self-interest. And it's supposed to be not only the black background behind the diamond of Jesus, it makes the diamond pop, doesn't it, when you put the black behind it, but it's also supposed to be a little bit of a mirror for you and I as we look at this awful story of King Herod. It's a bit of an interjection here as Mark goes off on a bit of a tangent about this particular King Herod and this particular incident. And I think it's here because we're supposed to contrast this king and humanity with what's come before that we know about Jesus and what comes afterwards that we know about Jesus. So that we might see what type of Messiah, what type of king and Lord Jesus is not. And therefore think, yes, you're brilliant. And so you might start this story thinking, gosh, it's a bit of a shock that John the Baptist is dead. And you might think, has he just thrown his life away? If I think we understand this passage, when you get to the end and he's dead, if you've got who Jesus is, then you think, John the Baptist did not throw his life away. That was a wise thing to do. If that feels a long way off, we need to pray that we'd understand this passage. Let me do that. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see that John the Baptist in the end had the right idea, sticking by Jesus and this good news, even that meant his earthly life, because he knew what type of king you were, and he knew you were worth it. Uh, Lord, I pray that you bless us with that insight this morning. Amen. Do you see how we start in this passage, John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. That's an odd way to start, isn't it? Uh, but it's no accident that the first mention in this passage of John being risen from the dead. Um, it's uh, hopefully, and also it closes with his body being laid in a tomb. There's an echo going on to Jesus here. Uh, and in the middle of that echo uh, is this earthly king, Herod, uh, that are not perfect, but self-serving because they're full of sin. And as we see his sin and limitations, it reminds us that betting our lives on ourselves or on people or on sages and people who are dead will always lead to disappointment and to death. Remembrance Sunday is, is a reminder of awful conflict, a conflict caused by man and by our sin on both sides. 
If there's no sin, there's no war. That's why we pray for the Middle East, for people to know Jesus, so that sin might be done away with, and that utterly impossible situation might be fixed. That's the only way it's going to happen. But in the meantime, we must choose who we want as our king in our lives. Is it going to be us? Is it going to be someone else? And Mark is trying to help us see that a life serving Jesus is infinitely better than either being the king ourselves or following some earthly king. Let's just have a look and see. Uh, verse 14 to 16 uh, is, uh, who is Jesus with his miraculous power? Uh, he's baptizing, he's got this growing following and this authoritative teaching. And the question that is being asked is, who is this Jesus? That's the question we're working out. They're not just asking it in the passages for us. Who is Jesus? And so we meet Herod, who has decided that whoever Jesus is, whoever Jesus is, he has decided that he is the king, hasn't he? He's living by his rule. He's the master of his own fate. He's the captain of his own soul. When he dies, the song he'll have played at his, at his funeral is, I did it my way, isn't it? He's marrying his brother's wife. And John the Baptist had told him that's not lawful. Do you see that in verse 18? He's doing it his way, not God's way. Which is a stark contrast, isn't it, to John the Baptist, who stood on God's word in the face of power and threat to his life. Do you see that in verses 17 through to verse 20? He's standing up to this power that is Herod. He calls out the human power to repentance of its sin, in this case sexual sin and adultery, uh, it's not said, but no doubt John's message was the same as that of Mark chapter 1-4, preaching a baptism of repentance, the forgiveness of sins. And Mark 1-8, that soon the Lord would come, and you need to get ready for this Lord who is your king. That's what John's probably been saying. He, uh, we see John the Baptist, he lived by God's word and promises. You see in verse 20, Herod knows that he's a righteous man. A holy man, that is someone who lives with Jesus or as God as king and does what he says. So his life is, is, is good. But also we see that he lived by God's words and promises and that we see verse 20 that he's innocent of wrongdoing. He's wrongly imprisoned. He's someone who obeyed God's commands, isn't he, John the Baptist, in his own life and in calling others to repentance. And he spoke God's word. You know, in verse 20, he's, he's telling Herod like it is, isn't he, in verse 18. It's not lawful for you. And Herod is puzzled, interestingly, by what John says. Did you see that in verse, end of verse 20? Yet he liked to listen to him. He can't really understand this gospel or this word of God. I think that's because he wants to do his own thing, doesn't he? But he likes listening. John the Baptist stood on God's word where Herod doesn't. And, in the fate, and he does that in the awful power of threat to his life and being in present. He just stands on it, doesn't he? And in the end, he dies. And you might be forgiven for thinking, has he just thrown his life away? But weirdly, he's not the one who's imprisoned or wasting his life. The real people trapped here are Herod and Herodias. And they're trapped by their sin and their fear of man. It's a stark comparison to the imprisoned John, who is free from sin and free from the fear of man, just to speak straight back to authority. Instead, he's a slave to righteousness and uh, a subject, a dearly beloved subject of God, isn't he? Can you see how sin traps Herod and Herodias? In verse 21, what does he say? Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And so the king said, 
to the girl, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she goes out, asks John the Baptist, and he comes back in and look what happens in verse 26. The king was greatly distressed. Why is he distressed? He doesn't want to kill John the Baptist, but he has to. Why? Because of his oaths and his dinner guests. He did not want to refuse her. And so a little girl has power over a king because of his pride, his sexual sin, because of his, because of his making oaths, because of his awful stewardship of God's people and their inheritance. He's just giving away their kingdom. It's not his. It belongs to God and God's people. And he's doing that for the sake of his lust. And it all coincides with the sin of Herodias, doesn't it? To use her daughter as an instrument of murder. It's a public pride and fear of man, isn't it, that means that he can't do the right thing. He's trapped. How did John the Baptist meet his end? I don't know. But I guess he was trusting in the Lord of life to actually raise him from the dead, waiting for the resurrection to come. I wonder if that's why this passage starts with Baptist, that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Now, why does he trust in that? Because he trusted the king who conquers death. And weirdly, in the passage before, how different was it back at the end of chapter 5 where the Lord of life, Jesus, uses a little girl to show that he can reverse death. But here is a king being used by a little girl to bring death. And the very next story is another striking contrast uh, against Herod and against uh, Jesus uh, Herod, you know, there's nowhere in this, in this spot, is there, is the interests of God's people. He is literally giving away their promised land to feed his own lusts. But as we go on into the next passage from verse 30 onwards, we've got, I mean, God's people, don't even, they're not even, not even mentioned, are they, in Herod's courtroom, uh, throne room? But on the next passage, Jesus is with his people. He is teaching them so they understand He is healing them. He's miraculously feeding for them and caring for them. And so where Herod is revealed to be a limited, powerless human before something as small as fear of man, his own stupidity and his own sin, Jesus at the end of chapter 6 will show not even a storm is able to stop him or even the laws of gravity as he walks on water and calms a storm. Herod's is a pathetic throne room scene, isn't it? It's awful and grubby. It's filled with sin and violence. It's petty. Compare that to the throne room of the Lord, the creator God, whose coming John the Baptist has been getting everyone ready for. This is what it's like in Isaiah 2.4. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. We long for the end of war, don't we? We long for something to happen in the Middle East that seems impossible. And we do that especially on Remembrance Day. But human authorities, like kings and queens or man-made religion or our own hearts, don't provide peace. At best, we delay peace and, sorry, we delay war, but at worst, we perpetuate war and trouble. Remember, war is not defending freedom, really, but it's wretched, sin-induced marring of creation. 
And we feel the pain and the horror of that wretched sin as we look at the Middle East, don't we? And we, the reader, are being asked to look here and compare and to choose. Who will we serve? And as we take it all in, you can't help be reminded by the mention of being laid in the tomb in chapter 6, verse 29 there, and John the Baptist being raised from the dead, that Jesus is the king who will die for you and I and be laid in a tomb, and he will rise again. And the obvious very big difference between these two kings is Herod is dead. Jesus is alive. One is dead, one is alive and ruling in heaven. When we say that we are the master of our own fate, the captain of our own soul, that I don't care so long as I did it my way, we are saying we are the king of our lives. But aren't we just like Herod? We're filled with sin and silly mistakes and awfulness and pettiness. We're lacking in wisdom and we make mistakes and it costs us later. And we're powerless before our fear of man to do what is right. And we are powerless before death. We are no more fit to be king of our lives than Herod and Herodias is fit to be my king and queen or yours. But Jesus is. Jesus is a king of justice and freedom rather than injustice and oppression. He's a king of righteousness rather than insisting on his own rights. He's someone who forgives our sins rather than sins to bring revenge. He's a king of absolute understanding rather than half understanding. He's a king who protects and guards our inheritance of his people rather than giving it away. He's a king who serves his people by dying for us rather than using up his people. He's a king who dies to bring life rather than lives to bring death. He's a king who is afraid of no one and serves no one except God the Father. A king whose word is true and accompanied by power to reverse even death. You could be forgiven at the start of this story to think that John the Baptist had got it wrong. Why challenge the king and queen? Why not just say sorry and just get on with your life? Why risk your life and and sentence in prison? Why rock the boat? Why end up dying for nothing? Except he didn't, did he? He died proclaiming the good news that Jesus is king and that he had come and that all that was needed is for Herod, even Herod, to repent and to receive Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. John got it right, didn't he? He knew he was following the king that would save him even from his death. And what looks like failure and death is actually victory and the resurrected life in Christ. On Remembrance Sunday, we remember thousands of men and women who gave their life for something. Sometimes it was the friend next to them. Sometimes it was for reasons that aren't clear to us anymore. We like to think that most gave their lives for the sake of something. And we want to say, was it worth it? Did they die for nothing? We want to say it's worth it, don't we? And that's what I want to say to you. What have you got to die for that's worth it? I think that we're seeing here that Jesus is worth it. There is no better cause, there is no better person to die for because death with him is really life and it's freedom and it's joy and everything. See, John the Baptist, he was willing to give his life for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was the one person that could lead him to forgiveness of sins and escape from punishment in hell, his saviour. That's the big thing, isn't it? The people we remember who died, they're heroes, aren't they? But they're not saviours. There's still wars, aren't there? But Jesus is. 
He knew that Jesus was the one person who could baptise him with the Spirit so he would be delighted over God forever in heaven. He died for his love. He, John the Baptist died for Jesus because he knew Jesus was the one king who could sort out the mess and violence caused by sinful kings and queens and people like you and I. He died because Jesus is future. I wonder if he knew that he was up for dying for his King Jesus because he knew his King Jesus would die for him and raise him to life. Isn't that marvellous? I pray that we would be a church that is willing to give our lives like John the Baptist for Jesus because he's infinitely worth it. He is the best king. And I pray that we would run away from sin and we'd run to doing what he says because his way and his life is the best. We may have many potential kings of our hearts, sinful desires. We want to bow the knee to wealth or to sexual gratification or power or the opinion of others. That's all embodied in Herod, isn't it? And these kings and queens of our heart might come in the form of some human being or their chat on YouTube or a podcast or or just with us following our own desires. I don't know, but let's be like John the Baptist who saw two things. Number one, how rubbish the would-be kings of my heart are. They're like Herod. And the other thing that he saw, how infinitely worth it Jesus is. Even worth suffering, prison, death, I'll bow the knee to him, not uh, to those false kings. And that enables us to struggle against sin and to follow Jesus to the point of shedding our blood. I've always struck by that verse in the Hebrews, which is encouraging them. You've not yet resisted your sin to the point of shedding your blood. How do you do that? You do that because you know that Jesus is worth it in every way. No longer do we justify our sexual sin or normalise our self-centeredness or agonise over what others think about what it is to follow Jesus. We want to do it, we desire to do it, and we must do it. Why? Because we see how brilliant Jesus is and how terrible human kings are. Uh, Sandhurst is a place in the army where they train uh, cadets into officers. Uh, They do about 700 cadets uh, every six months, I think. Yeah, about that. And they often have this address in chapel. Once a a general who was a Christian, uh, it's not often a time where there's sort of sensational preaching, but once a Christian general stood up and his, his message was essentially this. Let me ask you, imagine you're soldiers, trainee soldiers, but you're raw. Let me ask you, what will keep you on the battlefield when bullets are flying past your head? You all think that you'll stand by your men, but not all of you will. I've seen officers throw down their guns and run. I've seen officers hide in a hole and wait until the firefight was over. Only if you are rooted in something more substantial than yourself will you stand and fight. For myself... I'm rooted in Jesus Christ. He gives me strength to fight when I would rather run. I believe that you have to find something greater than yourself to root your life in if you are to be a useful officer. I recommend you root yourself in Jesus Christ. Root yourself in Jesus. There's nothing and no one that compares to him. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus... It is wonderful that no tongue can get to the bottom of proclaiming your beauty and your wonder and your goodness. We praise you for John the Baptist and we see, Lord, what looks so pointless to the world 
but it actually reminds us how glorious you are. And Lord, we lament where our hearts are like Herod and Herodias. Lord, we're so sorry for the mess and the conflict we cause. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a way to take all of that away and given us a future without any wars and without any of that pain. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us root ourselves in you. Maybe for the first time today, maybe we might pray to you for the first time and say, Lord, I'm sorry, help me. Or Lord, maybe we might re-grapple with that sin. Give us the power of your spirit, Lord, to do that, to re-engage with it, to stand fast and to have you as our king. Bless us, Lord, I pray. There's a church family in here in Chesham as being known as a people who bow the knee to no one, not even our own hearts. Uh, we only, Lord, love you. Amen.